Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 226. Today's big Bible questions are, does God sometimes abandon us? Does he turn his back on his people? So hello, friends. Happy Lord's Day to you. No matter how much longer this pandemic drags out, and no matter how dark and grim and worse it might get, if it gets worse, then rest assured in the great victory of the King of Kings over death that we celebrate not just on Easter Sunday, but on every Sunday, which is why I always call this the Lord's Day. Every Sunday is a day to celebrate and remember the resurrection of King Jesus. His resurrection, his conquering of death means life for all who are saved followers of Jesus, no matter how dark the times we are living in. I invite you to join us, as I usually do, at our Facebook uh, live stream this Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific. We actually also are going to have one at 1 p.m. Pacific. Uh, And you just need to go to Facebook and look for VBC Salinas. That's VBC, Victor Bravo Charlie Salinas. And we'll see you there if you can join us. We will be learning more about the Holy Spirit and hopefully be encouraged to seek his fullness. Now, our Bible readings for today include Ruth chapter 2, Jeremiah 37, Psalms chapter 10, in Acts chapter 27, now some exciting things happen in Acts 27, including Paul's adventures on the high seas, but that is not our focus passage for the day. Ruth, too, is pretty gripping, too. Now, remember that Ruth is set in the period of the judges, and the period of the judges is when the Israelites behaved in a most vile manner. Now, you might miss it, especially if I didn't kind of hint it was coming, but if you kind of listen carefully to Ruth, too, you will hear a couple or three hints that in this day it was apparently common for the poor women gleaning in the fields at that time, and gleaning means to uh, take um, the edges of the harvest of somebody else's field. In other words, you're too poor to have a field yourself. So the Israelites had a law in the Bible that told them to leave the outer edges of the field alone and not harvest them so that the poor people could harvest them. And at this time, Women would do that harvesting, usually widows, and uh, apparently it was the norm or at least regular for those women to be sexually harassed uh, harassed and raped, which is horrifying. And another illustration of people following their desires and feelings and wants and rejecting God's word. Now, we could also focus on Jeremiah 37 today, and in Jeremiah 37, there's this darkly humorous exchange between uh, King Zedekiah and Jeremiah at the end of the chapter. This whole time, Jeremiah has been prophesying to King Zedekiah, look, you're going to be taken into captivity. It's going to be terrible. And Zedekiah has been listening to other prophets telling him, oh, pshaw, that's not going to happen. God's going to give us victory. Well, listen to this in Jeremiah 37, Verse 17, King Zedekiah sent for him and received Jeremiah and his house privately asked him, Is there a word from the Lord? There is, Jeremiah responded. You will be handed over to the king of Babylon. Then Jeremiah basically went on to ask the king to get him out of jail and put him in a better place. And, you know, believe it or not, the king did it. That's just a very funny thing. Do you have a word of the Lord? Oh, yes, I do. You're going to be handed over to the king of Babylon. Now, I don't know if Jeremiah was being sarcastic there or what, but... 
It seems to be a great and uh, kind of sad example of dark humor. Well, that's not our focus passage either. Our focus passage is back in the Psalms, chapter 10, and it starts out in a dark place, but it ends in a more hopeful one. Does God sometimes ignore us and turn his back on us? Now, most Christians would religiously answer, of course not. But consider Psalms chapter 10, verse 1, Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? I am sure that all of us can relate to the questions of the psalmist here because all of us have felt the distance of the Lord in troubled times, perhaps during this pandemic even more than normal. Is God hiding? Is he standing far away? Is he attending to other more important businesses? Are his ears plugged to our cries? Well, let's read Psalms 10 together and consider this seeming distance of God. Psalms chapter 10, verse 1. Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked relentlessly pursue their victims. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked one boasts about his own cravings. The one who is greedy curses and despises the Lord. In all his scheming, the wicked person arrogantly thinks, There's no accountability since there's no God. His ways are always secure. Your lofty judgments have no effect on him. He scoffs at all his adversaries. He says to himself, I will never be moved. From generation to generation, I will be without calamity. Cursing, deceit, and violence fill his mouth. Trouble and malice are under his tongue. He waits in ambush near settlements. He kills the innocent in secret places. His eyes are on the lookout for the helpless. He lurks in secret like a lion in a thicket. He lurks in order to seize a victim. He seizes a victim and drags him in his net. So he is oppressed and beaten down. Helpless people fall because of the wicked one's strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He hides his face and will never see. Rise up, Lord God. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the oppressed. Why is the wicked person despised God? He says to himself, you will not demand an account because you yourself have seen trouble and grief, observing it in order to take the matter into your hands. The helpless one entrusts himself to you. You are a helper, God, of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked, evil person until you look for his wickedness, but it can't be found. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully, doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed, so that mere humans from the earth may terrify them no more. So this is one of the many psalms that begins in a dark and down place, but ends with more hope, greater hope. Now, one of the reasons that I have come to appreciate the Psalms more and more in my own personal life as we go through this pandemic stuff we're going through is because I, as I, as I get older, I can so much relate to the feelings and struggles and emotions that are expressed in the Psalms. I do feel abandoned by God sometimes, but he always reveals himself. I do feel the distance of God quite regularly, but also his presence. It can be baffling and confusing from our earthly perspective. And if you feel that too, look, you're not alone. And I think the Psalms brilliantly, honestly, and authentically capture so much of that. Psalms 10 in particular kind of uh, captures our groaning at injustice and our, indes- our desire and impatience to see God move and rescue. Well, 
Here's some great Spurgeon wisdom on Psalms chapter 10, and how cool is it that he also references Acts 27, which we're going to read in just a minute. Why standeth Standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble, says the King James Version of Psalms 10? The answer, says Spurgeon, to this is not far to seek. For if the Lord did not hide himself, it would not be a time of trouble at all. We might as well ask why the sun does not shine at night, when for certain there could be no night if it did shine at night. It is essential to our thorough chastisement that the Father should withdraw his smile. There is a need not only for many temptations, but that we go through them in heaviness. The design of the rod is only answered by making us smart. If there is no pain, there will be no profit. If there's no hiding of God, there will be no bitterness and consequently no purging efficacy in his chastisements. Let me suggest, says Spurgeon, that the question is not to be answered in the same manner in all of cases. In other words, he's saying the reason why God might withdraw is different probably every time. Sometimes it's past sin. Sometimes it's trials of graces. Sometimes it's strengthening of faith. Sometimes discovery of depravity in our own lives. Sometimes it's teaching, etc., 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 says Spurgeon. All of these are varied reasons for the hiding of a father's face. To the tearful eye of the sufferer, the Lord seems to stand still, as if he calmly looked on and did not sympathize with his afflicted one. In fact, the Lord appeared to be far off, no longer a very present help in trouble, but an inaccessible mountain into which no man would be able to climb. The presence of God is the joy of his people, but any suspicion of his absence is distracting to us beyond measure. Let us then ever remember that the Lord is near us. The refiner is never far from the mouth of the furnace when his gold is in the fire, and the Son of God is always walking in the midst of the flames when his holy children are cast into them. Yet he that knows the frailty of man will little wonder that when we are sharply exercised, we find it hard to bear the apparent neglect of the Lord when he forbears to work our deliverance. In other words, when he takes long to work our deliverance. Why hide yourself in times of trouble? It's not the trouble, but the hiding of our Father's face which cuts us to the quick. When trial and desertion come together, says Spurgeon, we are in as perilous a plight as Paul when his ship fell into a place where the two seas met in Acts 27.41. It is but little wonder if we are like the ship which ran aground and the forepart stuck fast and remained unmovable while the hinder part or the hinder part was broken by the violence of the waves. When our sun is eclipsed, it is dark indeed. If we need an answer to the question, why are you hiding yourself? It is to be found in the fact that there is a need for it not only for the trial, but for the heaviness of the heart under the trial. And he refers to 1 Peter 1.6 here, which says, You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. But how could this be the case, says Spurgeon, if the Lord should shine upon us while he is afflicting us? Should the parent comfort his child while he is correcting him, where would be the use of the chastening? If we are carried in the arms of God over every stream, where would be the trial and where the experience which trouble is meant to teach us? This psalm, though, ends with a song of thanksgiving to the great and everlasting King, 
because he has granted the desire of his humble and oppressed people. He has defended the fatherless and punished the heathen who trampled upon his poor and afflicted children. Let us then learn that we are sure to speed well if we carry our complaint to the king of kings. Our rights will be vindicated, wrongs will be redressed at his throne. His government neglects not the interests of the needy, nor does it tolerate tolerate oppression in the mighty. Great God, we leave ourselves in thine hand. To thee we commit thy church afresh. So that's Spurgeon on why it appears that God sometimes hides his face. And he makes a great point. Sometimes as we go through trials, which are necessary, says Peter, God does seem to withdraw to our dull senses. Of course, he's still there with us. Of course, he's carrying us through those trials. But if they didn't feel and seem to us as dark, they would not be trials and we would not grow from them. They would not develop the perseverance and the overcoming that the Bible says part of one of the reasons for trials is is there for. We are sent through trials so that we will become overcomers, so that we will walk in perseverance. In fact, The great news of all of this is that the Word of God says that God causes all things, even trials, even seeming neglect and abandonments, all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. So brothers and sisters, if you are going through the press right now, if you are going through the refiner's fire, if you are going through the ringer, and I suspect like a ton of you are, know this. The Lord loves you. He is with you. He is guiding you through this. This is for your good and my good and our benefit. It might feel for a time like we are abandoned, but the King of Kings and Lord of Lords abandons us not, and he sends us through trials and tribulations and seeming times of neglect for his glory and our good, and he is working his will in us. And if you can't take comfort in that today, you will one day and then for all of eternity take comfort in all that God brings out of our trials and tribulations. May the Lord carry you. We continue in Ruth chapter 2 verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabitess asked Naomi, Will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? Naomi answered her, Go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Later, when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to his harvesters, The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. Boaz asked his servant who was in charge of the harvesters, Whose young woman is this? The servant answered, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She asked, Will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and has been on her feet since early morning, except that she rested a little in the shelter. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. She fell face down, bowed to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor with you so that you notice me, although I am a foreigner? Boaz answered her, 
Everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother and your native land and how you came to a people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. My Lord, she said, I have found favor with you for you have comforted and encouraged your servant although I am not like one of your female servants. At mealtime, Boaz told her, Come over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. So she sat beside the harvesters and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. When she got up to gather grain, Boaz ordered his young men, Let her even gather grain among the bundles and don't humiliate her. Pull out some stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered, and it was about 26 quarts of barley. She picked up the grain and went into the town where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out what she had left over from her meal and gave it to her. Her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you gather barley today, and where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. Ruth told her mother-in-law whom she had worked with and said, The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, This man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. Ruth the Moabitess said, He also told me, Stay with my young men until they have finished all my harvest. So Naomi said to her daughter-in-law Ruth, My daughter, it is good for you to work with his female servants so that nothing will happen to you in another field. Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants and gathered grain until the barley and the wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Jeremiah chapter 37 verse 1, Zedekiah son of Josiah reigned as king in the land of Judah in place of Coniah son of Jehoiakim, for King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon made him king. He and his officers and the people of the land did not obey the words of the Lord that he spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. Nevertheless, King Zedekiah sent Jehokal, son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah, son of Masaiah, the priest, to the prophet of Jer- Jeremiah, requesting, Please pray to the Lord our God on, on our behalf. Jeremiah was going about his daily tasks among the people, for he had not yet been put into the prison. Pharaoh's army had left Egypt, and when the Chaldeans, who were besieging Jerusalem, heard the report, they withdrew from Jerusalem. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. This is what you will say to Judah's king, who is sending you to inquire of me. Watch. Pharaoh's army, which has come out to help you, is going to return to its own land of Egypt. The Chaldeans will then return and fight against the city. They will capture it and burn it. This is what the Lord says. Don't deceive yourselves by saying the Chaldeans will leave us for good, for they will not leave. Indeed, if you were to strike down the entire Chaldean army that is fighting with you and there remained among them only the badly wounded men, each in his tent, they would get up and burn this city. When the Chaldean army withdrew from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah started to leave Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to claim his portion there among the people. But when he was at the Benjamin gate, an officer of the guard was there whose name was Irijah, son of Shelemiah, son of Hananiah, And he apprehended the prophet Jeremiah, saying, 
You are defecting to the Chaldeans. That's a lie, Jeremiah replied. I am not defecting to the Chaldeans. Irajah would not listen to him, but apprehended Jeremiah and took him to the officials. The officials were angry at Jeremiah and beat him and placed him in jail in the house of Jonathan the scribe, for it had been made into a prison. So Jeremiah went into a cell in the dungeon and stayed there many days. King Zedekiah later sent for him and received him, and in his house privately asked him, Is there a word from the Lord? There is, Jeremiah responded. He continued, You will be handed over to the king of Babylon. Then Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, How have I sinned against you or your servants or these people that you have put me in prison? Where are your prophets who prophesied to you, claiming the king of Babylon will not come against you in this land? So now please listen, my lord the king. May my petition come before you. Don't send me back to the house of Jonathan the scribe, or I will die there. So King Zedekiah gave orders, and Jeremiah was placed in the guard's courtyard. He was given a loaf of bread each day from the Baker Street until all the bread was gone from the city. So Jeremiah remained in the guard's courtyard. Acts chapter 27. When it was decided that we were to sail to Italy, they handed over Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion named Julius of the Imperial Regiment. When he had boarded a ship of Adramitium, we put to sea, intending to sail to ports along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and allowed him to go to his friends to receive their care. When we had put out to sea from there, we sailed along the northern coast of Cyprus because the winds were against us. After sailing through the open sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we reached Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. Sailing slowly for many days, with difficulty we arrived off of Sinida. Since the wind did not allow us to approach it, We sailed along the left side of Crete off of Salmoni. With still more difficulty, we sailed along the coast and came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. By now, much time had passed and the voyage was already dangerous. Since the Day of Atonement was already over, Paul gave his advice and told them, Men, I can see that this voyage is headed towards disaster and heavy loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than to what Paul said. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided to set sail from there, hoping somehow to reach Phoenix, a harbor on Crete facing southwest and northwest, and to winter there. When a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they had achieved their purpose. They weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete, but before long a fierce wind called the Northeaster rushed them down from the island. Since the ship was caught and unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. After running under the shelter of a little island called Cauda, we were barely able to get control of the ship. After hoisting it up, they used ropes and tackle and girded the ship, fearing they would run aground on the Cirrus. They lowered the drift anchor, and in this way they were driven along, because we were being severely battered by the storm. They began to jettison the cargo the next day. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. For many days, neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope was fading that we would be saved. Since they had not been without food for a long time, Paul then stood up among them and said, You men should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. Now I urge you to take courage, because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship." For last night, an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar, and indeed, God has graciously given you 
all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe God that it will be just the way it was told me. But we have to run aground on some island. When the 14th night came, we were drifting in the Adriatic Sea, and about midnight, the sailors thought they were approaching land. They took soundings and found it to be 120 feet deep. When they sailed a little farther and sounded again, they found it to be 90 feet deep. Then, fearing we might run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight to come. Some sailors tried to escape from the ship. They had let down the skiff into the sea, pretending that they were going to put out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut the ropes, holding the skiff and let it drop away. When it was about daylight, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing. So I urge you to take some food, for this is for your survival, since none of us will lose a hair from your head. After he said these things and had taken some bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them, and after he broke it, he began to eat. They were all encouraged and took food themselves. In all, there were 276 of us on the ship. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing the grain overboard into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but sighted a bay with a beach. They planned to run the ship ashore if they could. After cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and headed for the beach, but they struck a sandbar and ran the ship aground. The bow jammed fast and remained immovable while the stern began to break up by the pounding of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that no one could swim away and escape, but the centurion kept them from carrying out their plan because he wanted to save Paul and so he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get the land. The rest were to follow, some on planks and some on debris from the ship. In this way, everyone safely reached the shore. Praise God for that. And by the way, if you heard a little bit of squeaking in the background as I read that last chapter, well, I apologize. That was our little dog, Cooper, who had been put in his kennel for the night, and he decided to do some squeaking because he did not want to be put in his kennel. Well, friends... May the Lord not put us in our kennels. May he bless us and shine on you and guide you and give you strength and wisdom and favor as we go through this most difficult of times we're going through. He is faithful. He is good. He is with you. May he shine his light on you. Good day and Godspeed.